If you haven't been around or you're new to the church, we've been going through Acts for quite some time now. And last week, we had a, uh, uh, somewhat of a, a large episode that happened in the book of Acts where a riot of some 20,000 people or more came together because of the way that the gospel was impacting the city, the things that it was doing there, and certainly centered on the message coming from this man named Paul. And as Paul is in the city of Ephesus and sharing the gospel and these events happen, he eventually leaves, the riot calms down, and then he will go and do what he's been doing this entire time, which is going from city to city, sharing the gospel with different people, raising up leaders, teaching them, training them in God's word. And as we finished last week, we saw that there was a change that had happened in that Paul was approaching the time when Pentecost would be celebrated again. We can kind of gather at this point some 26 years or so after the first Pentecost that it had become a Christian celebration in the early church. And so, so Paul, Paul is excited about it and he wants to go back to Jerusalem. So after all that's happened, And these nine years of missionary journeys that he's been on, he says, I'm convicted that the Spirit wants me to go back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And so he starts to make his trip on the way. And right before he does, he will will stop at a, a port town, a smaller port town, in fact, than Ephesus was. It's about 20 miles south of Ephesus called Miletus. And and uh, he moves from Troas to Miletus, and he gets on a boat, and he, he stops in Miletus, and he says, you know what, I can't go yet, as the typical sort of fashion that we see with Paul. He says, There's, I, still, like, I still need to talk to these believers. I, I have a little bit of time, maybe by you know, the captain's estimation, maybe a day. If we wait any longer, I'm not going to get there on time, and I'm filling in gaps for us. But that's the sort of attitude that Paul has when it comes to being with other believers. And so he says, we're going to stop. And he stops in Miletus, about 20 miles south of Ephesus, and says, go send for the elders at the church of Ephesus. I've got to talk to them. So as that happens, they come. And that's really our text for today. It's, it is um, Acts 20, 17 to 38. It's the second half of Acts 20. And what happens is Paul gives these Ephesian elders, the ones who are overcharged for the church, God's church there, to protect it and keep it, he gives them a farewell. And we got to keep in mind that as, as Paul approaches this episode, he's been with these people for three years of his life. He's had a very itinerant life, moving from city to city all across the Roman world and the Jewish world. And now he gets to a point where for three years he stays with the same people, teaching them day in and day out, putting up tents with them, taking tents down, arguing in the synagogue, eating meals with them, sleeping in their homes, waking up, having breakfast with them. Three years of ministry. And now Paul's leaving and he says, before I go, I have to talk to them one more time. One more time. These are Paul's best friends. And so that's what he does. He calls them and encourages them and gives them a farewell. 
and encourages them to continue on in the work of the Lord. There's somewhat of a passing that we see here in terms of the authority in some sense and the, the care and the protection for the church. So that's what's going to happen in the passage. And as I was going over this week, I was struck by a couple things. And I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you. The first is that I don't think we should look at this passage in a, uh, in, in, a, in a simply analytical sort of fashion. You see, this passage today that we have gives us a number of markers for what leaders in the church should look like, what they should do, how they should act, all that sort of thing. In, in one sense, you could say that this is, this part of Acts, this small chapter, is the job description for pastors. It's a job description for elders. This is one of the best places in the New Testament to find it. What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to act? And it would be right to talk about that. But at the same time, I think there's a bigger point that's going on here. You see, as, as Luke records this whole episode, he does something very special with this episode that he doesn't do with anything else in the entire book of Acts. The book of Acts revolves around a number of speeches. You have Peter's speech at the beginning. You have Stephen's speech. You have Paul's speeches, constant defenses and trials. And so the book of Acts revolves around a bunch of speeches, but this is the only speech in the entire book of Acts that is given directly to Christians. No unbelievers. No Jews and Gentiles. Not people who are skeptical. These are people who are fully bought into God's movement in the world, and they're the leaders of this church. And so, as Luke writes, he gives us an example here with Paul that's unlike any other example. You, this is, I think, arguably the, the most intimate conversation in the entire book of Acts. It is riddled with tears, as we'll see. It's a very emotional, very emotional passage. And so, I think as Luke is writing, we could say, yes, what are the parts what are the job description points that an elder is supposed to have in the church? And we'll see some of those, undoubtedly. But I think the more important point that Luke has for us as he writes to the early church is to say, this is what a church should be like. This is how a church should operate. These are the, the sort of belief systems that a church should have. And, and so Paul's, Paul's question to them, in one sense, is... What is a church? How should a church be? And what sort of church should you pass on? And that's what he's doing to these Ephesian elders. Is he's saying there's, there's a kind of church that is worth passing on. There's a kind of church that endures through the ages. And let me tell you about it. I was, I was convicted. I was constrained by the Holy Spirit to come here to plant this church, to tell you the gospel and to grow you up in this salvation. And let me just tell you one last time before I leave what this church is supposed to be like. And so that's the sort of conversation that Paul has with them here in Acts. And the second thing that I had in mind as I was going through this is there's actually probably a fair amount of similarity between this episode and our own church. And what I mean by that is that this church Paul's talking to, the Ephesian elders, and he said brothers and sisters later on, so we can gather that even though the elders of the church are there that he's talking to, is actually a little bit more people than that. And as he does it, he's, he's talking to them in one of the most pivotal 
times of their life. One of those most pivotal times of their life. And that's because Paul is everything to them. Paul's the guy with the most theology. Paul's the best preacher. Paul's the best leader. Paul's the boldest person in the room for the gospel. And here they are, believing the gospel, being a young church, and Paul's leaving. If I was one of these guys, I know I would be saying, Paul, can you just stay for like another year? And we've got some questions about um, some morality issues. We don't know. Like there's this guy and he's like, I got to go. You have to deal with it from now on. And so he commends them to the gospel ministry. And the sort of correlation as I was looking at it for our church was that this is the eighth anniversary of our church. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you probably surmised by my title as interim lead pastor, the church, our church, is in a different place than we used to be. Here on the eighth anniversary, without the founding pastor of the church, things are different in the church. The, the, the leadership of the church is different in some sense. The, the culture of the church is different in some sense. There, there is an anticipation of kind of what will be next in a transitionary phase. And it's very similar for these Ephesian elders as they're there in the Ephesian church. That they say, what are we going to do? How, what what sort, of, sort of church? And I think in a sense they're asking, should we be? And this is what Paul gives them. He says, here it is. Let me tell you. And so with that in mind, let's walk through this passage. And instead of main point, we really just have main question today, and it would be this. What kind of church must we pass on? What kind of church must we pass on? I'll go ahead and start reading for you in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, which is what we talked about, and they came to him, and he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first point today is this. We have four and we'll take them in order. That we must be a church that tells the truth. Must be a church that tells the truth. This is what Paul is saying to these Ephesian elders. You see, he says a, a couple of pairings here. He says that he, when he was with them, he declared and he taught. And not only that, but we see that he also did this in public and in private. He did it in public where everyone could hear and in their houses, house to house. So what does he mean by declaring and teaching? You see, when Paul looked back, which he does now at the beginning it's a great way of kind of gathering everybody together. We all do this when you're saying goodbye. I remember when. That's what Paul does. And he says, over the past three years, how did I act before you? What was my normal mode of operation? What was the theme that ran through everything I did? And he says, it was declaring and teaching truth. It, moreover, we see that he's, he's talking about truth and this is a kind of communicating truth that is not stoic. It's not analytical. 
primarily, but it's very passionate. He says he, did, he delivered this kind of truth with tears. He did it with trials, unjust trials. He suffered unjust wrong so that he could give this kind of truth. He declared it. You see, Paul came with a force, a passionate force into Ephesus in these people's lives, not saying, here's God's truth. Like, it'd be good if you kind of spent some time on it, thought about it a little bit, let it interact with your day. He said, you have to hear this. You have to. If you miss this, you will wreck your lives. He declared it. He went in guns blazing, telling them the truth, declaring it. But he also taught it. And I'm sure this happened constantly on Sunday mornings for them, as that was a normal thing in the church, even then, after the Lord's resurrection to meet on Sunday mornings, that he went in declaring the word of God and teaching it. And there's that aspect of it, that on, this is what we're doing here. It's what I'm doing now on Sunday morning, declaring and teaching, that there's a training aspect to it. There, there's an aspect where you have to be offended by this. It has to run cross ways to the way you think about life. But at the same time, there's a sort of nurturing aspect to it that you're trained in it. You learn it. The sort of smaller points of your life get filled in by this truth. And that's what Paul's doing. He's declaring and he's teaching as he comes to them. He says, this is what I was doing the entire three years that I was with you. Declaring and teaching. And not only that, but he tells us that he was doing it in public and in private. You see, when, when you have the opportunity to tell truth in any situation, there will be some conflict. There will be, be some counterpoint that comes up. And... One of the ways I thought about this is, uh, in its importance, is with my own wife. So, surprise wife illustration for you. Um, but if I, if I started going to my wife, Andrea, and started to call her a different name, and started to act like she was a completely different person, if I, if I started to act like the things that she loves are things that she doesn't really love. And the things she doesn't love are the things that she loves. So, so she, uh, you know, she likes working out. If I, said, if I said, you know what, today we're not going to work out. In fact, this whole week, no workouts. She probably wouldn't like that. Some of you may actually say, that's a good thing. I don't know why uh, it sounds like a good call to make. But, but that's because it's something she loves. Or if I started calling her a different name, it would merit some sort of response. I'm sure. And, uh, and you can try this in your own home. Or not. I'm not giving you permission. Never mind. Don't do that. But you would get a certain response. Why? It's because the way that I interact with her is in accordance with truth. It's the way that she actually is. And this is what Paul's saying. He says that truth is important because the church are a group of people who are people who actually know God. They're the people who know God as he is, in truth. And so it would be a foreign thing. It would be a weird thing. It would be, it would be a wrong thing to have a church that goes around telling people that God is not loving or that Jesus didn't come to die for sinners. It would be strange because it would not be in accord with who God actually is. And it's the same sort of thing with us. We know this. That if someone comes to you and calls you a name, 
So we just started playing uh, soccer or, or taking the, uh, the oldest to soccer. And you meet people and you inev- inevitably call people the wrong name. What happens when someone calls you the wrong name? You just think, you don't know me. Like, good try, right? But you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. It's the same with God. Truth matters first for Paul as he comes into Ephesus because he says, if you don't know who God actually is, you don't know him. You can't relate with him. If you don't know the truth, then how in the world will you actually love him? The same is true for us. So Paul comes in and he does this, this, this declaring and teaching. He does it publicly so everyone can hear it. But then he also takes this truth and he drives it home, literally. He drives it into people's homes, house to house. And I'm sure that there were situations for Paul where he had people that couldn't read or certainly didn't know the scriptures. Maybe they were too ill to get out in public. And so what does Paul do? He goes to them and he says, I need to tell you this truth. I need to tell you about God and who he is. I need to tell you about the repentance that he demands from us for turning from him, about the faith that's required in Jesus Christ. There's an interesting aspect here, I think, that Paul's making. Interesting implication of public and private truth-telling. And is this. That the sort of truth that you can get in a sermon, like today, right now, is not the same. It doesn't have the same application power that it does in your home. So this is why we have community groups. Because I can tell you God loves you. You can hear that right now. But it's only when you get into a smaller place of your life with intimate friends that you can be honest about those struggles and say, you know what, I'm really just anxious. Anxious all the time. Anxious about even being anxious. Anxious that I can't stop being anxious. Well, what's happening there? You can't deal with that on a Sunday morning. But you can deal with that in community. When you have other people in your life that know and love God come to you and say, Matthew 6, don't worry. He cares about the birds. If he cares about the birds, he cares about you. He cares about the flowers. They don't labor and spin. He cares about you. When you have that sort of dynamic, a public truth-telling and a private truth-telling, the gospel and God's truth all of a sudden goes from maybe just kind of touching on your heart to all of a sudden digging into your heart. And that's how we change. And this is what Paul says he was doing for three years. His ministry involved telling the truth. And so for us as a church, the application is clear that we have to be a church that does this. Have to be a church that tells the truth. If we don't, we don't know who God is and we can't apply God's truth to other people. So we have to. Second thing Paul tells them is he tells them that Their church and our church must be a church that does not coast into comfort. In verse 22, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul moves here from just saying, here's how I lived among you. He, he looks back, as we see, for an example for them. But now he's looking forward. He's looking to the future. He says, I left you an example, and now I will continue to be an example for you. And he does this by talking about his trip to Jerusalem. And this, this is something that Luke has, has foreshadowed for us. He's just given you the hint of it a couple of times in Acts. But now Paul full on says it. He says, you've guessed at this, and it's true. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, but I know when I go, I'll be imprisoned, and I'll be beaten up. I'll be misused and abused. And this is, this is what he says to them, that I left you an example, and I'm giving you an example still. And I think we have to think about this for a second. You see, Paul has a choice here. Paul has a choice of going to Jerusalem and these sorts of things happen. And eventually, of course, we see that he does go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome and he dies for the sake of the gospel. And Paul is himself, like the Ephesians, at a crossroads. He says, I have a choice to make. Go back to Jerusalem and suffer or go somewhere else and try to avoid it. But Paul, he knows what's going to come and he still goes. He knows, but he still goes. You see, Paul is about 51 years old here. 51, maybe 52 years old. He's got nine years of beatings, scar tissue all over his body. Not to mention, as he says, the more important thing for him, which is the constant, the constant sort of anguish in his soul about whether these churches will make it or not. And here, he's finished this chapter of his life. He's, he's done his job, as he says, and now he can go do something else. And so what does he do? I imagine if I was Paul or knew of someone in this situation the choices would be continue on in difficulty or do something else. But that's not what happens. You see, it would be really tempting for Paul to say, Timothy's young. He knows everything I know now. I've trained him. Trained him for years. All these Ephesian elders, they can protect the church. I don't have to be here anymore. Very tempting for Paul to say, I think I'm just going to slide into retirement now. I think I've had enough difficulty for the Lord. I think I've done my job. I think I've paid my dues. It's time for me to just coast. Is that what Paul does? Absolutely not. Paul, at the end of his life, says, I'm running faster. I'm pushing harder. As he says, He's doing this because I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul sees the finish line. So he starts sprinting. And we know this. If you've ever been in a race or ever been done anything athletic, you know that when it gets to the end, when it gets to the end of the event and things are close, what happens? You get more passionate. You get more energy. And Paul says, the choice before me is this. I could just find some little hut 
on the Mediterranean coast. Nice sea breeze. Have people come and take care of me. Or I could go to Rome and tell people about Jesus that otherwise wouldn't hear. This is the sort of life that Paul is giving them. He looks back, but then he also looks forward to say, I'm leaving you an example. I didn't just give you an example. I'm leaving you an example. And why would Paul do this? Uh, He says something incredible here. He says in verse 24, that I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. And what's this ministry? What's the course he's running? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I'm not done yet. I can't stop. The thing that's motivating Paul to continue on is the gospel. As he's knocked off his his mule or his donkey or his horse back in Acts 9, when Jesus shows up to him, what does he say? What does he say? But I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That he has work to do, and that work is beautiful. And so Paul says it's not over yet. The reason he didn't coast into comfort is because he knew that in just a few short years, nine or ten years in fact, he was about to see the risen Lord. He was about to see Jesus. And what's Paul's motivation? He says, when I see him, however it works, if I die in Jerusalem, if I die in Rome, wherever it is, I do not want to have him come find me sitting on my rear, doing nothing. I want to be engaged. And so the example that Paul leaves and the church that Ephesus must be and the church that we must be is a church that does not coast into comfort. We could talk about this for a while. I won't do that much longer. But we have a siren call to us here all the time in the comforts that we have. All the time. Getting a more comfortable car, a more comfortable house. Consumerism is the air we breathe, is the water we swim in. It's hard to think outside of it. But here we have someone who lives outside of it. And he says, it's not about me. It's not about making me comfortable. It's not about getting more money. It's not about being more secure in my finances. It's not. It's about Jesus and telling people about him. So we see that we must be a church that tells the truth. And part of telling this truth means that it will change your life as it does for Paul. So Paul says that we must be a church that doesn't coast into comfort. We can't do it. We can't just idly sit by and say, well, I guess I don't need to engage that much. I give some money. That's enough, right? Not at all. Jesus demands everything from us, and Paul knew that. Third point, we must be a church that is attentive and alert. And we get that from verses 25 through 31. And now behold, I know now that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you This day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to 
care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among my own, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says that we must be a church that is attentive and alert. He says, pay careful attention to these men. Pay careful attention. Why? There's a number of reasons, but I'll just give you the short one here. Paul says that if you're going to care for other people, you have to care for yourself. In fact, you can't care for other people if you don't care for yourself. And there's a, there's a slew of self-help books out there now that, that hyper-focus on this without anything having to do with God. But Paul's point here is this. That in order for you to care for the church, in order for you to care for other people, you have to tend your own soul. You have to. And so the, the implication is for elders for sure, but it's for everyone. That if, if you let the fire of your desire for God's word go out, maybe just die down into just a little flame, how in the world are you going to warm someone who's dying of hypothermia? How in the world are you going to interact? How in the world are you going to come into someone's life and be ready to say, be encouraged, be warmed. God has more for you. The principle is that if you don't watch yourself, you can't watch the flock. So Paul tells them, watch out. Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock. There is a danger. And, and then he says, Another reason why they need to pay attention, why we need to pay attention, and this one's a little bit harrowing, uh, but I'll tell it to you in a little bit comical way. He says that this is, you need to pay attention because this is something special. The church is unlike anything else in the world. And I couldn't help but have the same image in my mind that I think everybody does. I don't have any daughters yet. I don't know if I will, but... But th there's that sort of image when the boyfriend comes over for the daughter, right? And what's the, what's the, what's the father doing? Well, he's going to try and intimidate him, of course, because dads like to do that. But also because he's trying to communicate there's this person of extraordinary value to me. Extraordinary value. Precious. And so the dad, what does he do? He's there sitting in his recliner polishing his shotgun, right? And Paul does the same sort of thing here. He says, he says you got to watch yourself. you got to watch the flock. And he says, you know why? Because Jesus' own blood paid for it. It's precious. If someone messes with the church, Jesus is coming after them. Paul knows this. He says the church is extraordinarily precious to God. It's extraordinarily unique, extraordinarily valuable. And so as he commends this to the Ephesian elders, he says, you've got to be careful for the church. You've got to pay attention and watch the church. This is something unique about the church in the entire world. Let's say it this way, that Jesus did not die for the government. You could say, well, theologically, there's a number of reasons why Jesus died. He died for his father's will, his obedience to 
to do a number of things, but to say that Jesus died only for a group is the church. Jesus didn't die for a country. He didn't die for a nonprofit. He didn't die for a parachurch ministry even. Jesus died only for the church. And he will see his church come to him. And so Paul calls the Ephesian elders to take care of the church because there's nothing like it in the whole world. There's nothing more precious to Jesus in the entire world than his church. And Paul leaves the impact with them to say, be careful, pay attention to it. But he also says, be alert. Because as we see, wolves and twisted men will come into the church. He says, not only will they come into the church, the wolves coming in from the outside, but there's going to be twisted men from among your own numbers. People in the church, not outside, people in the church who begin to believe and teach things that are not true about God. As Paul's already said, we've, we've got to talk about God in truth. And here he says that there's going to be there's going to be danger of wolves and twisted men in the church. And what do they want to do? What do they want to do to Jesus' bride? They want to destroy it. They want to rip away the, the sort of affection and attention that the church should have on Jesus and say, no, you need to, you need to pay attention to other things. Comfort. You see, Paul leaves with the Ephesian elders, the picture of a church who says, you've got to be alert. And he says, in some sense, attention and alert. Pay careful attention and alert. He says it twice, just like we would say to our kids. Don't touch that, it's hot. No, really, don't touch that, it's hot. Paul's doing the same thing. He says, be alert. He says, pay attention. And then he says it again. No, seriously, like I'm telling you, be alert then I can imagine coming back again. Are you alert? That's what he's doing. And he, he gives the example of his own life. How long should we be alert in the church? He says, for three years, I didn't cease day or night. So the picture is always. And I wonder if we do this. I wonder, I wonder if we're as attentive and alert as Paul wants or we just kind of slide into laziness with our own love. See, that's the temptation for these elders. Should I, should I really keep this fire of God going? Should I really read the Bible every day? Should I really meet with believers on a consistent basis? Should I really pray? And Paul says, if you don't, your affections will grow cold and you will not be able to help other people in the church. The danger the church faces is constant. And so the careful paying of attention and alertness must be as constant as the dangers. We must be a church that is attentive and alert. Otherwise, it's only a matter of time. It will fall away from loving Jesus and be captured by Satan's schemes. Point number four. We must be a church that grows in grace. We must be a church that grows in grace. Paul has looked back at what he gave them as an example. He looks forward at the example that he continues to give them by going to Jerusalem. He looks forward for their own church. And he says, in the future, this will happen. 
And now Paul looks up in a sense as he finishes out his speech to them. In verse 32, And now I commend to you God, commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered, they ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The church we see here must be a church that grows in grace. Paul commends them. In some sense, he releases them. He says, you're old enough now. You graduated high school. You're moving out of the house. Go and be faithful. And as he does, he doesn't just say, go do it. You go do it. He says that the word of grace is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. And so there's a couple things here that Paul tells us that the word of grace, which is synonymous for the gospel, as he talks about, is something that can save them. And they know this. This isn't a surprise to us. I think everybody realizes it, and I think everybody knows it. How do you become a Christian? How do you love God? It's by believing the gospel, that God gives you new affections, a new heart to love him through the work of his son. But Paul also tells us something else. He says, he says that I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. He says the way you started in the Christian life is the way you have to continue. And I don't know, I was probably, it was probably about five years after becoming a Christian for me at the end of high school that I, I had a, a total change in my thinking when it came to this truth. I thought that you, I heard the gospel, I believed, and now I had to go figure out the Christian life for myself. And I had to discover all sorts of things and just keep God's commands. That's part of it, but that's not what Paul says here. He says, the way that you enter the gospel, the way that you enter the Christian life is with the gospel. The way you grow in the Christian life is with the gospel. The way a church grows is with the gospel. And so he says, I commend this to you, the gospel. You have to keep it front and center. It's the way that you grows the way you learn. But he also says, in his own example, he says that I, I've given you an example, and it's like the example of Christ. So he says, yes, remember what I say, but if you can only hold on to one thing I've said, is this. Look to Jesus. He's the one we're supposed to model after. He's the one we're supposed to follow. And as he does that, he will, in a sense, say, pursue Christ above all else. And so we see, we see this happen, that Paul says, as a church, you need to tell the truth. 
You need to have a church that does that. You need to have a church that doesn't coast into comfort, but fights to remain to keep your passion hot for God. That is attentive and alert. That doesn't allow the devil or anyone else to come in and distract you from being close to Jesus and a church that grows in grace. This is what Paul says a church has to be. And I think it's easy for us to look at that and say, okay, no arguments. Seems right to me. But in actuality, you probably would think, well, that's good news, yes, for someone, but not for me. I mean, who can actually do all this, keep all these commands, be truthful all the time, not give up, and just slide into comfort? Who's always vigilant? Who continues to grow in God's grace? Who's, who's that sort of person? And I think you're right, if that's your line of thinking. And that's Paul's too. He says, no one does this perfectly. No one can do this. But at the same time, Luke gives us a picture here that I think puts everything together. And he's been telling us the entire time. But we probably haven't caught it. So let me make it clear to you. You see, what's happening here as Luke portrays Paul as someone to model, that he's really saying, model Christ. Everything that Paul is doing in this chapter is something that Christ has done. You see, Jesus had a ministry that was characterized by servant leadership and a bold proclamation of God's truth. It's the exact same thing that Paul's doing. Jesus underwent trials for speaking God's truth from the Jews. Paul says he's doing the same thing. In Luke 9, Jesus says that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, undissuaded. He's going. And what does Paul do? He says, God's calling me to go to Jerusalem. I must go. The same sort of thing. He also says that he didn't hold on to his life. And what did Jesus do but give up his life? You see, in all these ways and so many more What is Paul doing? What is Luke doing by talking about Paul this way? He's saying it's totally possible. You can be a church like this. You can be a people like this. We must be a church that grows in the word of grace, the gospel. We're both saved by this grace and grow up in it to maturity. And this is what Paul says a church must be like. And so the question this morning is, what kind of church must we pass on? And if all these points are too much for you, then I think the simple answer is this, that we must be a church that leaves a gospel legacy. We must be a church that passes on a gospel legacy to our kids and the future of the church, to other people in this area. What is the church known for but the gospel? This is what Paul wants for them, and I believe it's what God wants for us. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us a mind to understand what you're saying here? That there's a kind of church that looks more and more like the world around it, and then there's a kind of church that looks so much like you that it stands in stark contrast with everything else. God, would you give us such grace to be a church that prizes the gospel above all things, that looks on to future ministry, not by the
power or the determination of our own mindsets and achievements, but by the word of your grace. That it's your word that comes and creates a new heart. It's your word that comes and creates a church. It's your word that comes and creates resolve. Father, and just as Paul commended this church to the grace of the word, Father, would you continue to move in us in the same way? We thank you for your son and all that he's done to give us this grace by dying our death and rising for our life. God, we ask that for future years, future anniversaries, this would be a mark of our church. This would be a mark of our impact in the community. A church that prizes the gospel and holds fast to you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.